Okay, um, we are going to do our, and I'm going to grab one of these microphones. Last week I preached the whole message without a microphone. Remember that? It's halfway through the message and I'm really, really, why am I using both of my hands? I feel so free and I realized I don't have a microphone. So, I don't know. I know some pastors wear that wire microphone. I, I don't know if I'm there yet. Um, maybe at some point. Today will be our last message in a series of 12 messages, and the kids are free to go to Sunday school. I forgot to mention that. Okay. Uh, this will be our last message in a series on the life of David. Uh, we've, when I started this series, I thought I'd like to preach 12 messages on the life of David, and started the, started the process of preaching and not really counting how many messages as I'm going, and then I realized as I was preparing for this message that this is number 12, and I feel that we've really, you know, we've only skimmed the top of David's life. There's a lot that we could look at and understand, and there's a lot of amazing things about David's life that we really didn't get to, to tackle, but that's okay. It leaves us with an appetite to maybe do personal study on his life to read. So, and I do encourage you to take notes on these messages. If God speaks to you about something, write it down and then uh, go back and read your notes during the week because um, we do say a lot in these messages and these messages are meant for you to and for me to uh, really grow and to rethink and to meditate. You know, meditation is not just a word that's used in Eastern medicine, uh, uh, mysticism. It's a word that's used in the Bible to uh, meditate, to go over and to re-chew and to rethink. And when we meditate, really what we're doing is we're, uh, we're taking what we have heard in our brain, the logical raw information, and we begin to digest it. And that can be a process. And as we digest it, it goes to a deeper part of us that is in a place which is ready to be applied. And uh, there's a lot we could say about that. I wrote a book, by the way, on prayer, and there's, I think, two copies left back there. So if you want to grab it, you can. Uh, it's free for our guests. Um, and if you can just take it if you'd like. You don't have to give me any money for it. Uh, I'm not really looking to make a lot of money on my books <laughs> at all. But it's a book on prayer. It's a 30-day prayer guide, and it's something that I've been thinking about over the last four years of just the subject of prayer and the depths of it and the amazing miracle of it because many people never discover depth in their Christianity. And so let's, um, let's do a quick review. Last week we spoke on 2 Samuel chapter 24, and we spoke about uh, David's um, counting the people. And when he did that, we said that that was an act of pride because it was really a statement of self-sufficiency and self-dependency. And the story of David's life is just David depending on the grace of God, depending on God and his, and his great need for God. And that's why David had a heart after God, and that's why God used him in such a great way. But well, we see that in the end, after David numbered the people, that there was chastisement that came into the picture. And we see in 2 Samuel chapter 24, the latter part, verses 15 to verses 16, 17, 
and 18, that there is a pestilence that comes and people begin to die. David understands that God is a merciful God, so when the pestilence or the plague reaches to a certain man's threshing hold, he sets up an altar there. And that's a very significant place if you read historically what that threshing floor was and what it became later on in Israel's history. I'm not going to tell you anymore. I'm just going to let you to look. I'm going to let you look at that and do some homework. It's a very, very important spot in Israel's history. David builds an altar, and because he understands the principle of an offering and a sacrifice, God is merciful, stops the plague, and Israel is spared. And that brings us to a very important point, that when we sin, we have an offering, we have a sacrifice, and that is Jesus Christ in 1 John 1, verse 7, 8, and 9. That when we sin, we have an advocate, and our advocate offered his life, died, rose again, and now is, our, is now our lawyer in heaven. He's, he pleads our case. How many of you have ever had to get a lawyer? Don't raise your hand. I don't want to <laughs> violate anybody's privacy. Actually, I got a, I got a moving violation. Uh, I told you about that last week, which was uh, very interesting. I took a left-hand turn on a very fast yellow light, which we're new to the area, so my wife knows this. I've timed all the yellow lights where we used to live, and I know how much time I have and how much time I don't have, and that's not a good thing. But uh, so I met the Warminster, nice Warminster police, uh, thanked him for doing his job. And, and uh, but anyway, I had I had a lawyer write me a letter. He said, I noticed that you got a ticket. And I was like, wow, how much information do people know about me? <laughs> and um, and I thought, you know, we have an advocate. We have a lawyer, someone to plead our case. And that's what Jesus does. And, you know, when we sin, it's not the end of the story. Failure is part of the story of the human race. That is why God has prepared and made, pre-planned a sacrifice for us. And when David understood this, he offered a sacrifice in hope of Jesus Christ, knowing that Jesus Christ is the final offering for our sin. So this, this the book of 2 Samuel ends with the Lord being in being entreated, and the plague was stayed. What a way to end a book about the story of God's grace, that God is satisfied with the offering, and there's peace. David has peace with God. So we move to the next page. It should be the next page in your Bible if you have a normal Bible. It's 1 Kings. And we start in chapter 1. David is aging. He is getting older. And we notice that... We've seen this happen before in David's kingship, that when there is a vacuum of leadership, there is a conspiracy that begins. And there's a lot to learn about David's uh, leadership style here. Some leadership gurus have said that David should have already had in place someone that was going to be reigning, and he did. But he did not activate that person to do so. And so there was a vacuum of authority. And whenever there's a vacuum of authority, the devil will try to take advantage of that. Because the devil is a usurper. He will create conspiracy. He'll create confusion. Because the church of Jesus Christ, anyone who names Jesus Christ and is bought by his blood and really filled with his Holy Spirit, 
the church is going to be a city set on the hill. It's going to be like a lighthouse. And that is really a great threat for the devil because the devil hates lights. He hates light because you, you turn on the lights and the darkness is dispelled. It's overcome. Uh, darkness can sometimes be, and I said this, I think, recently, I think, in Baltimore when I was speaking there at a rap, that darkness can be sometimes very overpowering, can't it? It can be unbelievable. People, we've all had times of darkness in our life, or dark days where we just feel the darkness surround us and pile on top of us, and you can almost feel like a prisoner in the dark. I remember traveling at times overseas and uh, some of the places that we've gone to were not really modern places that had proper lighting. And I remember being outside in a vast space and there's no light. And you literally feel, the, you can feel the pressure of dark on you. you. You feel like you're in a small little room. But you're really actually in a very wide place. And this is the power of darkness. But as soon as we light a candle, that candle, that little flame can light up for a, a long distance. And people from far away can see that light. And it becomes a compass for them. And so this is the way the church is. This is the way Israel is in the Old Testament. It is a light, very maybe at times small, but it's a very powerful light of the nature and the character of God. And that's the way you and I are. We are, by the grace of God, these lights. And Jesus said, let your light shine. And so David here is aging, and there's a conspiracy to take the throne by a man by the name of Adonijah. But David has Solomon anointed king. David, in his age and in his, he's losing his faculties, anoints, has Solomon anointed. And let's read this in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And I'm going to read this to you um, from the King James. Now the days of David drew nigh that he should die. And he charged Solomon his son, saying, I go the way of all the earth. Isn't that interesting? No matter how great a man or woman of God is, they always are, we are always subject to that way of all the earth, death. And that is a humbling thing, isn't it? That even some of the greatest men today that claim so much accomplishment are also susceptible to that day when they die. And that is why... Eternal life is such a great question, isn't it? And it pertains to everyone. I go the way of all the earth. Be thou strong, therefore, and show thyself a man. And keep the charge of the Lord thy God, and go and walk in his ways to keep his statutes and his commandments and his judgments and his testimonies. Now there's four words there, statutes, commandments, judgments, testimonies. All four of these, and we don't have time to get into it tonight, today, uh, maybe tonight we will, but these words all have separate, very unique meanings that reflect to the work and the ways of God. Very interesting to read these in the original. As it is written in the law of Moses, that thou mayest prosper in all that thou doest, and whithersoever thou turnest thyself, that the Lord may continue his word, which he spoke concerning me, saying, If thy children take heed to their way, to walk before me in truth with all their heart and all their soul, there shall not fail thee, said he, a man on the throne of Israel. That's why we have as parents and grandparents such a great mission, don't we? To really lead our kids and grandkids. And I, we know, I know how it is that many, many grandparents today are raising kids. 
their grandkids, and that's just the way it is in many cases. But we have a real responsibility with children, don't we? I was thinking the other day uh, about our Sunday school here, and we've we've introduced a new new program with our Sunday school because we want our kids, and Sarah and Christine are doing an amazing job, but we want our, our kids to grow up in the Lord and not leave at the age of 17. We want them to continue on in the Lord. We want them to grow in, with content as kids. And so David here is very much aware of his son's road that is facing him and he says I want to charge you to walk in the ways of the Lord and Solomon we know becomes a very great king with a great gift of wisdom and I love the story of Solomon in the Middle East the the name Solomon is really a big name especially in Arab Muslim cultures and Solomon was a great man he was the considered the wisest man that had ever lived on many accounts and so the story, the secret of Solomon's success is, what, is that he had what? What did Solomon have? Wisdom, right? He had a gift of wisdom. I have a, my wife and I have a friend uh, in our church that we met in Ukraine. And he's a businessman. And he's very, very successful. But he's very modest. He drives, he drives around in a very normal kind of beat-up car and... Uh, very successful. He's, he's employed many people in our church when they needed work. And uh, God's really blessed his business. And he's got an amazing story of how he became successful. But uh, I remember sharing the gospel with him, and he basically threw me out of his dormitory. Uh, and I don't remember this. He tells me later, when he, when he started coming to church, he told me that this is what happened. And uh, he came to the church, began to walk with God, received Christ as his personal Savior, and God began to really bless him. And I asked him one day, I said, you know, how can my wife and I pray for you? What are the things that you need prayer for? And he goes, I only need one thing in my life, only one thing. And I go, okay, what's that? Because I need wisdom. Pray for wisdom for me. Because if I have wisdom, I have everything I need. And I, it will give me everything that I would ever need or answer any question that I would ever have. Wisdom in the book of Proverbs is called the principal thing. It's the most important thing. The book of Proverbs says that in all thy getting gets what? Hello? Wisdom, right? Anybody read the book of Proverbs here? In all thy getting gets wisdom, right? Not the almighty American dollar, not the almighty European euro. Get the wisdom of God. And so... There's a story, I love this story, I've told it probably a thousand times over the years, but there's a young man that visited Socrates, and he was in search of wisdom. And I don't know how much wisdom Socrates really had spiritually, but this is a good story, I like this story. And so Socrates, to the young man's surprise, takes him, and they begin to travel across a great plain, and then they cross over a mountain range, and they're just traveling for days. And this young man is just amazed. Where are we going to get this wisdom? And they come to a large river, and Socrates takes him out to this river, and as they wade out into the water, he takes this man by the head, and he dunks him under the water. And he just keeps him there. And so the young man is thinking, this must be some kind of ritualistic baptism, or maybe this is part of me apprehending wisdom in my life. And 
he begins to realize he's running out of air. And so he's starting to lose his patience and starting to get dizzy. And so he starts to struggle to get back to the top of the water. But Socrates is not letting him up. And he's struggling and he's just about ready to pass out. And then the hand comes off of the young man's head and he darts back to the top of the water and he's gasping for air just for his, for his dear life. And, and the young man was just absolutely perplexed. He's, he was wondering why was this such this odd thing just done to him. And as the young man is getting his breath back into his lungs, Socrates asked him, what do you desire the most right at this moment? And he said, air. <laughs> air, I need air right now. And Socrates said, until you desire wisdom like the air that you are desperately trying to breathe now, you will not have it. Wisdom comes, number one, by hunger. Hungering for wisdom. And you know, there's two ways we can get wisdom in our life. We can either voluntarily seek it out in our life through the Word of God and talk to wise people that have been on the road with God for years or that just know the Word of God. Or we can do it involuntarily. Like this young man, we are just kind of ignorantly going through life. And this is really the most of us are in this second category. Kind of going through life, not really having any kind of instruction manual of what's happening. And then we run into a crisis. And we find ourselves on our knees crying out for wisdom. The Bible says that if we ask for wisdom in James chapter 1, God is faithful to give it to us. Because he's without partiality. God does not play favorites. God will give wisdom. And so the second way that we can get wisdom is really the fear of the Lord. And this is really the story of the book of Proverbs. I thought, you know, the book of Proverbs has 31 chapters. What a great way to, what a great way to go through that book in a month. Just read a chapter a day. And there's your devotional for the month of December if you want to do that. Read the book of Proverbs. It's very, very, very great. It's a very wise book. And the book of Proverbs was, uh, some have stated that these are probably written from the notes that Solomon got from his father's teaching when David, as a father, taught Solomon. He was probably taking notes as a teenager. And from these notes developed the book of Proverbs. And so the fear of the Lord is really the second way. First, hunger for wisdom, that dire hunger for wisdom. And the second way is the fear of the Lord. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right, in the Bible. And so there's two types of fear, and I want to just mention this. Um, that when we say the fear of the Lord, I think some folks could misunderstand it and even try to err in trying to explain the fear of the Lord. I've heard it explained like this, and I like it. This, this, I like this explanation. The fear of the Lord can actually be related to the way we respect a train. Have you ever stood at a train platform and you can see the train coming, a big, huge train coming down the track towards your location? And even though we know that the train is on the track, it's not going to come off the track, there's a measure of respect for that, isn't there? You, you find yourself stepping back. In all the years living in Europe, riding on these big Russian, Ukrainian trains, I still do that. You know, I, I'm standing at the, at the they, call it, they call it a parent over there, the platform. And the train is coming, these big, huge Russian diesel trains coming up, and they're very loud, but 
they never are going to ever come off those tracks, hopefully, normally. And that is really like the fear of the Lord, because God in a lot of ways is like this train. He is predictable, predictable in the sense that we know God's nature. We know God's nature, and because we know his word and we know God's nature, he is great and he's mighty, but he's also predictable. He's not going to do something rash and unwise and scary that's going to really um, freak everybody out. God's ways are predictable. And even though we know God and we know that the train's not going to come off the track, there's still that measure of like, I better step back a little bit. I'm not, I'm going to get on that train and that train's going to get me where I need to go. And I'm not afraid to get on it, but I respect it. I respect the size and I respect the power of the engine. And that's really the fear of the Lord. It's not a phobia, but it's really just a respect. The second kind of fear is really more like the fear of a phobia, which is can be illustrated in this way. How many have ever had a fear of snakes? Okay, uh, you don't have to raise your hand. Um, fear of snakes. Why is that so fearful? Because just looking at the creation is it, it's very spooky looking creature. The Snake is different in the sense that it's unpredictable. We don't know where it is and where it's going to show up. And um, we don't know if it's going to bite us or if it's not going to bite us. And we can see it all coiled up and we don't know when it's going to strike. And the book of Proverbs talks about a snake lost in a man's house. That's a scary situation. I don't know if you've ever had snakes in your house. But snakes in your house is not a good situation because you could be asleep one night and you could have a visitor in your bed bite you. Um, That is the fear, the phobia of an unpredictable creation, a snake. And so we see the difference between the respect for a train and then the phobia of something that's unpredictable and evil by nature. And so here we see that wisdom is something that we do we want to put that on the top of our priority list as people, as Christians. That more than emotional stimulation, more than intellectual enjoyment, more than our just our uh, elongated hours of entertainment, we want to have wisdom as my principal goal in attaining in my life. Because, look, <clears throat> we could be dirt poor, And that's okay, wherever God puts us is really fine. But a person could have very little resources in their life, but if they have wisdom, they are going to go places. They're going to go places. And we know of many great men and women in, in human history that have really attained much and have done much in the kingdom of God with very little education. <clears throat> Look at the disciples. <clears throat> Excuse me. For example, the disciples. Uh, some some folks say that Peter's level of, of education was not very high. It could have been something that he did not even have a grade school education because he was a fisherman. And so wisdom is really the principal thing that we are seeking after in our life. You know, when there's no fear of God and respect for God, then there's very little wisdom. When there's no fear of the Lord, we can see this happen, and we can see this happening with older people and younger people. I was thinking, you know, God forbid that I become familiar in my life and that I stop respecting the great work of God because of some measure of success. That's the biggest 
fall point right there that a person could experience success in their life, but then they begin to lose respect for God, and they begin to lose respect. How many times have people been injured? <clears throat> excuse me. How many times have people been injured uh, in uh, in industrial accidents because they just became familiar with the powerful machine that they're operating? It can happen. We lose respect, and we lose our wisdom. People are made up of layers. Think of that. We are made up of layers. You peel away one layer and there's another layer there. It's been illustrated by Pastor Shallow. I like this illustration that we are like onions. And you can peel away a a layer of the onion, but there's another layer there. And God is peeling away the layers of the onion because he wants to get to our core. And people are like layers, but wisdom that comes from above that is... Outside wisdom as well as inside wisdom brings discernment. And I want to stop here just for a minute, discernment. The Bible talks about two words. Solomon had wisdom and he had discernment. Two words here I want to look at, discernment and judging. Um, Judging is a very big word today everywhere. Don't judge me. Uh, All people say that. Uh, I feel like you're judging me or... I don't want to judge people. We all feel that way. There's a difference between discernment and judgment. Discernment and judgment really a lot of times in the Greek language are the same word in the New Testament. And that's really interesting for Greek. And I don't, I'm not a Greek professional, but I know a little bit. Greek words are very specific in the way they describe things. But in this case, it's the same word. <clears throat> so discernment differs from judging. And if I could just ask for a glass of water. Tony usually has this for me, but he's not here today. Um, Discernment is when I, through the filter of the Bible that I have in my heart and in my mind, through the filter of the Bible, I detect something. I can see something. I can see the, um, the color of something. Thanks, honey. discernment gives me the clear picture of what's happening behind the scenes sometimes and I can see the motives sometimes of something or I can discern the spirit of something that is not so obvious we've all walked into a room and detected like that this you know maybe in a in a restaurant or somewhere and we've detected that the spirit of God is not here it's a different spirit and that is discernment. Uh, we can discern somebody. And the discernment can actually be sometimes a scary word because it, people may think I'm being analyzed, I'm being studied, I'm being picked apart. But that's not what discernment does. Discernment is a word that is married to the love of God. Love and discernment work together. So it's like this. A, a parent looks at their child and detects that something's not right in their life, that they're in trouble. Uh, Or a friend looks at another friend, and they detect that something's not right. They discern something, but because love is there, love makes discernment discernment. Love sees the need and acts out of compassion. Discernment that leads to compassion is correct. That's correct. That's the correct way to function. That's what wisdom gives us. The wisdom of God gives us discernment, that we're not naive, to detect what the problem is, and then we can act in compassion. And that is effective Christianity right there. 
Judging, on the other hand, and a lot of people say this, you see this often, um, people that have alternate lifestyles, they, they are very sensitive to being judged, and there's reasons for that. But they will say, don't judge me, don't judge me. And, and they will even um, precursor the conversation with, I don't want you to judge me, but I'm going to tell you something. And judgment is different from discernment because judgment is when I... Judgment and discernment have the same starting line, but the finish line is different. Judgment detects the problem, sees that something's wrong, can define what the problem is, but there's no compassion to act out God's heart and God's wisdom for the circumstance. And the result is, I am better than that person. I am looking down at that person. I am I'm condemning that person in my own eyes, and I'm pushing them aside as something that's not approved in my life. And, you know, when the Bible tells us to really separate ourselves from people that cause divisions or that live in an infectious lifestyle that can impact me but or you, but the judging is when we is when we take that person and in the we take the place of God in that circumstance and we push that person aside in disapproval and we march forward in our self-righteousness or whatever that is. And so judging and Jesus said this in John chapter 8 to the woman that was caught in adultery, neither do I judge you, neither do I condemn you. Judging condemning is really very there two words that are very closely related. Neither do I condemn you. Why did Jesus say that? Because Jesus was going to the cross to pay for her sins. He was the only one that could say that. He was the only person on the planet that could ever say that. Neither do I judge you because I'm going to pay for your sins. Does that mean that she could live the way she wanted to live? No. Jesus said in the same breath, Neither do I judge you, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And when a person understands that there's compassion love, encouragement, um, support, then they're not going to want to desire the old lifestyle. So wisdom, and I'm going to finish the message with this, wisdom made Solomon the greatest king of Israel. So it's okay for us to live in discernment and not to be like, because sometimes we may think this way, well, I don't have such a great past, so I don't want to pass judgment on people so quickly because I'm not such a great person either. But discernment has nothing to do with you and I. Discernment, it really has to do with the way God thinks. Um, the policeman that speeds and breaks the, lim- the speed limit is still authorized to enforce the law because the law is bigger than the policeman, right? I don't know if everybody agrees with that, but that's the way the law is the law. And it wasn't invented by the policeman. The policeman is just enforcing the law. Do you understand what I'm saying? When we see someone and we detect that there's something that's off in their life, we're not judging them. And don't feel like, oh, I can't have a conviction about that in my life because I'm going to judge them. That's okay. We don't want to judge people. We just want to understand that God thinks differently, and this is the way I'm going to think in my life about that, because that's what the Bible defines. Solomon becomes great, becomes a great king in Israel because of the wisdom. I want to read this little biography of him. King Solomon, the son of King David, and second king of the kingdom of Israel, reigned over the tribes of Israel for 40 years. From, um, And these are, these are dates that are not based on A.D. and C, uh, B.C., but 967 to 928. 
It was during his reign that the kingdom gained its highest splendor. Think of what wisdom does in a person's life. The kingdom gained its highest splendor. Solomon was renowned throughout the ancient world of his time for his wisdom, his wealth, his extensive political and commercial allies with the nations in the region. It was he who built the first temple of Jerusalem, thus establishing the city not only as the political capital of the kingdom, but also the religious center for the people of Israel. God really used Solomon. And we know that precious story of how in Second Kings, uh, for in, for in, in First Kings chapter three, verses three through sixteen, we don't really have time to read it this morning. How God appeared to Solomon and He said, "Ask me whatever you want, and I and, and you you will have it." And I think that many people have dreamed about that day. A genie would come to them and ask whatever you want. I saw a commercial recently, and maybe you saw that too, where a genie appears to the guy and says whatever you want, and the guy said, I want a million bucks, and then appeared outside of his, out of his house were just all of these deer with antlers everywhere, millions of them, and that's not the way God appeared to Solomon, God said to Solomon, what do you want, and Solomon said, I am just a boy, I need wisdom, and God said, because you didn't ask for wealth, riches, and influence, but you asked for wisdom, I'm going to give you all of it, isn't that wisdom great? So when God asks you, what do you want? Just say, I don't want that new car. I want a new, I want wisdom. I want wisdom, God. And when we ask for wisdom, then he gives it to us. In closing, there's two types of wisdom. And I, I just want to finish it with this. In James 3, chapter, 5, chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. And tonight we'll go over this in detail, the two types of wisdom. There's earthly wisdom, which we all know what that is. Just go on Facebook. <laughs> I'm just going to find a lot of earthly wisdom there. And that, that earthly wisdom is earthly. It, it has a magnetism to it that pulls us down. You ever talk to somebody who's earthly in their wisdom? They just kind of pull you down. It's first earthly, and then it's sensual. Sensual meaning that it's not just something that's sexual by nature, but it's something, sensuality means it's pleasing to all the senses. Isn't that what the devil said to Eve? Pleasant to look upon, right? The apple. And then thirdly, it becomes demonic. There is demonic wisdom out there. There's, there, is, there are demons that traffic information. And these demons are, um, we can talk about it sometime, but they are very much involved with uh, different types of religion and philosophies and um, ways of living today. And so we want the wisdom which is from above, which is first pure, it's peaceable, it's gentle, it's entreatable, it's merciful. It has good fruit. It has no partiality, and there's no hypocrisy in it. These eight characteristics of wisdom we'll talk about tonight in the class. So wisdom, you know, today when we go home, you know, we have our time with God privately. Ask God for wisdom. Just say, Lord, give me wisdom. Give me wisdom in circumstances. Give me wisdom when I go shopping. <laughs> That's what I always pray. <laughs> Gives me wisdom, because God knows, you know. I went to visit somebody. By the way, Savitri had her baby, and um, it's a little boy. I went to visit her yesterday. She had a lady there helping her. and She goes, I sent my husband to pick stuff at the store up for me hours ago, and I haven't heard from him since. <laughs> and I thought, okay, you know, that's the most dangerous thing you could ever do is send your husband. I don't know if all husbands are like that. I go to a store, and I'm just, I just 
go and I'm going to trance mode because I just don't even like where do I start? I think they're these shopkeepers, you know, they they can see these kinds of people walk in, you know, like there he is. <laughs> That's a husband zombie right there. He has no idea where he's going. So hit him with all the instant offers. So we want wisdom, don't we? Amen. So let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, we want to ask you this morning for wisdom. We want to ask you wisdom for our family, for our wisdom, for our marriages. Lord, we want to ask you wisdom for our careers, our jobs. Lord, for our health. Give us wisdom for our ministry. Each one of us are ambassadors for Christ in the kingdom of God. We want to ask you for wisdom in how we minister to people. We want to ask you, God, for wisdom in our personal decisions and in our prayer life. Teach us how to pray, Lord. We thank you, God, for this beautiful service today and ask you, Lord, that you take these words and seal them in, your, in our heart for your purpose. In Jesus' name, amen.